Welcome to the Midweek Bible Study with Ben Schaefer, the podcast where we dive deep into the timeless wisdom of Scripture, one verse at a time. I'm your host, Ben Schaefer, and I'm thrilled to have you join on our journey through the pages of the Bible. We are currently studying the fifth book in the New Testament called The Acts of the Apostles. So grab your Bible, something to write with, and let's get started. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you so much for this opportunity for brothers and sisters to gather together and uh, just peer into your word, Lord. We are so honored to be in your presence. We're honored to be able to take in your word and God it's not a it's it's a privilege and so I don't want to undermine the fact that you brought us here and and you got us to this point and so father God I pray that by the power of your holy spirit that you would take whatever words that I say and the faithful uh the faithful brothers and sisters who are giving up their time that you would meet those together and work in a powerful way through your spirit to show us how to be more like you and how to grow in our relationship and our walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm going to go ahead and get started, everybody. And Steve, if you can get more chairs, that'd be amazing. Actually, we got more chairs right here. Awesome. All right, I'm letting everybody in. So guys, this is this is a brand spanking new study. You guys are a part of a brand new thing that's starting here. It's uh it's a ministry that I've been dreaming about. Um, I've been doing on the side. Um, I've been doing as much as I possibly could, can. But honestly, I've been scared. I've been scared and uh, fearful of stepping out in obedience to the Lord, as many of you can probably attest to. Stepping out in obedience is difficult. So guys, uh, thank you. I'm humbled to be a part of this with you. So with that being said, I would I would like to just jump right into the word because that's what's the most fascinating about this. I want to be a, a vehicle, a, a conduit. So today we're going to jump into the book of Acts and we're going to want a long, long journey, 20 some odd weeks of diving verse by verse through this amazing book called the Acts of the Apostles, uh, classically uh, titled uh, Through Antiquity. And today I would like to lay down just some ground rules for how I approach the text. And I'm going to do this in about 60 seconds. So if you guys want to take a picture of this, you guys want to don't, I mean, don't feel like you can't go back and read this, but here's what I do. If you guys draw a little arc, uh, by the way, there's pencils over here. This arc is what I do when I exegete scripture. This arc is um, very helpful for, for me to understand how to approach the text. And here's what it is really quick. Uh, right here, you start with your text. So we're going to start with our text today. And we're going to go through an exegetical, contextual journey. We're going we're to cover things like historical context. We're going to cover things like literary context. What kind of, kind of literary uh, writing is it? We're going to talk about biblical context. What is it doing in the Bible? What's it there for? And then we arrive to this FA, which I call the first audience. Who is the first audience? Because that's the most important thing to figure out before we talk about this audience. we got to figure out what did it mean to them before we ask ourselves, what does it mean to me? 
in American in American churches, we have a hard time doing that sometimes. So we got to step back and ask themselves, ask ourselves, what does it mean to them, the original audience, before we ask ourselves, what is applicable to us? So then we take a little journey called a theological reflection. What does that mean? Theological reflection means I have to take what I learned in the context, historically, literary, biblical, and I have to apply it to the Christ event. I need to figure out where's Jesus? Where's Jesus in this text? Because, guys, did you know this entire book is all about Jesus, right? We know that. Well, some people don't. So we have to come to the cross. We have to see where does it play in the Christ event. Then we can take our journey to us and now application. Okay? All right. That's it. That's that. If you guys do that, you're good. <laughs> All right. Let's get started. The book of Acts is a special book in the New Testament. It's a historical account of the apostles um, and spread in it, it, it's recording the outward spread from Jerusalem uh, following Jesus's resurrection. As many have noted, it's probably misnamed. It's actually probably more accurately named the Acts of Jesus. Or some people will even say the Acts of the Spirit, because it is through the power of the Holy Spirit that the church was born. That's what this book's all about. So it's called the, Act of the Acts of the Apostles, but it's actually only talking mainly about two. Do you guys know which two those are? Peter, Paul. And it's focused on Jesus's work to build his church by his word and his spirit. So the book is unique in many ways, and I'm going to give you a couple weird little things to write down in terms of why does it make it unique? What's unique about this book? And so, number one, it's the only New Testament narrative, a part of the Gospels, that together with the four Gospels makes its own little sort of Pentateuch. Do you guys know what a Pentateuch is? The Pentateuch is like the first books of the, of the Old Testament. Well, this kind of capstones the first five books of the New Testament. So, it's Number two unique item is it's a bridge between the life of the Messiah and the New Testament epistles. You guys know what epistle is? It's the letters, right? So it's the bridge, acts, 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 like a bridge between the Gospels and the letters to the church. So it's our number three. It's, it's actually our only record of how the Gentile church was birthed from Judaism. You guys ever wonder how we got to where we're at today with the church, the Gentiles in America? Guys, this is going to show you how that works. So the author, anybody know who the author is? Luke. The author is Luke. The author of the third gospel is what? Luke, right? There's a book in the gospels called Luke. He himself wrote that gospel. Well, he also wrote this book called Acts. Guys, did you know? Luke and Acts is all one work. He actually penned both of those to be read together. In fact, this is exactly what people would do in the first audience. They would actually get the, the body of Christ together in an upper room somewhere, enjoy and take and remember the Lord's Supper, and they would actually read the entirety of the book of Luke and the book of Acts in one sitting. When's the last time you did that? <laughs> Go do that with your family sometime. See if you can keep their attention. <laughs> so, so let's talk about this crazy dude named Luke. Well, first off, hold on one more little snippet. This actually makes up 25% of the New Testament. That's crazy. 
the New Testament has a lot of stuff in it. Well, this book makes up 25% of it, and it's the only book written by a Gentile. Did you know that? Crazy. Did you know that you're a Gentile, potentially? Most likely, we're all Gentiles here. All right, so let's talk about Luke. This pretty fascinating study of, of just himself. He was a traveling companion and a close friend and personal physician to the Apostle Paul. According to an early prologue to Acts written in the second century, Paul converted Luke during one of his early missionary journeys. Isn't that crazy? So, curious, so curiously, Luke writes the story of Acts in third person until chapter 8, when Paul reaches Troas, Greece. Isn't that crazy? So he actually uses third part, third, like third person until chapter 8, and it flips to, to first person. You guys are going to see that. Chapter 16, he, cha he switch switches over to first person. So this has led many to assume that Luke was living in Troas when Paul converted him, and then he left Troas with Paul. Luke then accompanied Paul in all his journeys until Paul's death as a martyr. Did you guys know this? So Luke remained unmarried. So he was an unmarried dude. He didn't have a, he didn't have a wife, poor guy. He didn't have any children. Man, lucky him. I'm just, I'm just joking. Uh, and, and he was devoted to helping Paul. So he died at the age, we know, of 84. Little snippets about Luke. Without Luke's record in Acts, some of the things Paul wrote himself in the epistles that he gave us, that we now teach every single Sunday in all of our Bible studies, we would just not even be able to understand it. Think about it. We wouldn't have any context for what is going on in the epistles. So dating the letter, let's talk about dating this letter. How old is it? It's pretty easy. It's actually really easy. We know it captures most of Paul's missionary journeys, but it's also notably silent on Paul's death and the destruction of Jerusalem. When was the destruction of Jer Jerusalem? 70. Yep. This means the book it's likely written before Paul died, somewhere around 60 to 62 A.D. So this means that the book covers about 30 years of history of the early church. So this is pretty incredible to me, because if you go to church right now, don't you want to know where this whole thing came from? So this is what this book is all about. Finally, let's briefly consider the structure. So, guys, when I talk about finding an exegeting scripture and finding the real meaning of, 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 of a book of the Bible, a good thing to always do is look for structure. Structure. It's a big word that has to be considered. It tells you so many things in the Bible about what you are actually reading. So as I teach verse by verse, I always try to emphasize finding the structure. So the Holy Spirit is the author of this book, for sure. And God is a God of order. So it's pretty much incumbent upon us to look for the order and understand it. If you don't, you're missing it. So let's look at the let's look at some structure stuff, okay? So numero uno. The first, the first point that you can write down is this book records the outward movement of the church during Luke's lifetime. From its beginning in Jerusalem 
to its eventual arrival in Rome, this is what we see. God's city Man City, Rome. Isn't that cute? It's an arc. It goes from God's city to world city. It goes from God's city to enemy city. This is where it's going to leave. It's, we start here today in Jerusalem, and at the end of the book, don't cheat, don't go to the end, we're in Rome where it all happened. So the plot line is a one-way arc. It doesn't come back. That's what this book's structure is. There's a theme evident in the pattern of the kingdom of God is moving outward, out of Jerusalem, into the world, Asia Minor, Europe. Uh, I guarantee you what we're going to cover is the reason you're a believer today. One of the reasons your believer, your believing parents potentially are believers, is because of the work that is recorded in this thirty-year period. Secondly, let's look at the second structure to be noted. The story presents the gospel taking root first among the Jews, then the Samaritans, then who? Gentiles. So God gives this specific order of what the king, the keys of the kingdom. Who will be given the keys of the kingdom? First, the Jews. Second, the Samaritans. A lot of times people skip right over that one. The third, us, the Gentiles. This is another very significant structural thing that comes back time and time again. So fulfilling Jesus' word to the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, the salvation is for the Jews, but will that, that salvation is of the Jews, but will unite Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles. God said it. He's doing it. He did do it, and he's in the middle of doing it right now. So, third, Luke focuses on the ministry of Peter in the first half of the book. What's the second half? Paul. Peter and Paul, two apostles. So Luke's two-part structure alludes to the eventual transformation of the church from predominantly Jewish to exclusively, potentially, Gentile. Very significant. Don't overlook that. That's very powerful. Finally, fourth one. Luke punctuates his narrative and triumphal statements, emphasizing the true power driving the church forward. Is it our, is it our music? Uh, is it our really good um, marketing ploys? No, it's the Spirit of God. This is punctuated in this book. So today we study the section of book commonly called what? Introduction. This is the introduction. Guess what the introduction is? Chapter 1. All right? So I put all these little references here. Guys, we're going to blast through this really, really fast. So who wants to read? I want somebody to read out loud Acts 1, 1 through 5. Isn't this great? This is like old school, man. This is this is like oh, I mean I'm I'm loving this. Go ahead, Steve. Read it out loud. First account I composed uh, Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had given orders by the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. 
To these, he had also presented himself alive after his suffering, but many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of things regarding the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Wow. Okay. Luke wrote Acts to document the events after Jesus' ascension. So chapter 1 forms a bridge between the gospel and what comes next. You see that? So Luke begins this book in the way he began his gospel. Theophilus. Who's Theophilus? You guys ever wondered that? Who is this guy? Well, Theophilus is a Greek man. He's a Roman. He is an official. Most of your translations, did, did any of your translations say most excellent Theophilus? In Luke, he calls him most excellent this is a title of rank of a Roman officer. So Luke may have been commissioned to write these accounts by this official, because it's really pricey, to apparently, who was apparently a Christian. Crazy, right? A Roman official, a Christian? Pretty fascinating. He likely was Luke's benefactor who supported Luke's ministry and even Paul's, perhaps. This is conjuncture, but I'm just saying it's pretty much pretty much the way it is. So Josephus, he was a historian. Anybody read Josephus's work? He's a historian in the first, first century. He famous, uh, the, the history of the Jews, he famously pins a bunch of histor historical facts of the Jews and was written the most excellent Ephrodites was jo Josephus's benefactor. So we we call we take little things like that and come to the conclusion that when you address somebody most excellent, we really understand that they have to be a Roman official. So concerning Luke's purpose, he in, he he, in, he says that the gospel was just the beginning of his record in the first few phrases. Did you see that? Just the beginning. I'm just a, I'm just recording the beginning. He's saying. So likewise, Jesus's work in the gospel was just the beginning. Did you know? And Luke also notes that the, his first account ended when Jesus was taken up. So in Luke 24, we actually read this, Jesus is seen to depart in a very specific way. Luke 24, 50, if you guys want to see it, follow along, it goes like this. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. But, all right, here we go. As Luke shows now, there was a, bit, a little bit more involved in Jesus' departure than Luke chose to cover in his first account called Luke. So in verse 2, in Acts, what does it say? that Jesus conveyed orders to the apostles prior to his ascension. He gave some things they need to do. And they ordered, and, and these orders were delivered by means of the Holy Spirit. What's the significance of Luke's explaining that Jesus delivered his instruction by the means of the Holy Spirit? What's that significance, do you think? Right. It's coming. It's coming. Jesus spoke these words 
So why did he need the Holy Spirit to be involved, do you think? I mean, I've had people debate with me a little bit saying, well, it's Jesus. You, you know, why, why, does it, why does he need the Holy Spirit? There is a biblical principle I want to, I want to dot right now that spiritual truth cannot be understood by flesh. You can't, you can't understand spiritual truth with flesh. It has to be given you that understanding, not by natural man. It can only be understood by means of the Spirit of God. Let me give you a proof text. It's 1 Corinthians 2.12. It says this, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the what? Spirit. Combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. In other words, when we're exposed to spiritual truth in, in here in Acts, I want you guys to remember that you're not going to get it by thinking really, really hard. You're going to be able to get this only by means of the Spirit of God. So first off, are you a believer? <laughs> Have you given your life to Christ? We need to cover that first. We, we will not, you will not understand a lot of what this book says if you're here as an intellect, intellectual only. So remember how often Jesus would teach the apostles and yet his words were just completely like this, over their heads. I call them intellectual frisbees. You know, you've ever been in a class where the, the teacher's just like trying to wow people like, well, you know, puffing himself up and in his head's blowing up. This is, this is called intellectual frisbees. Jesus would do these things. He would say these things that the disciples would not even understand in their flesh. Talking about a kingdom? You mean like you're going to kick the Romans' butts? No, 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 no. That's coming later. What do you mean? You see what I mean? You ever been in that mode with Jesus where you don't understand what he's talking about? It was a demonstration of this same principle right here. Jesus' words in that moment before he took off into the clouds were a mystery until the Spirit was working to make them understandable. Very important principle to understand in our, our daily walk. We see that the, this moment after the resurrection in John 20. John 20, 20, it says this, And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side, and disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, this is verse 21, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them hmm, and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Interesting. So Luke explains that the instructions the disciples received were delivered by a seminar? No. You know, or a podcast? No. The Holy Spirit. So when can we know the apostles actually got it? Like, when did they get it? And they were delivered during times, by the way, when Jesus presented himself alive as proof of his power over death. That's a big deal. So that was a kind of a big mm, indicator that maybe I am off a little bit. Maybe I should listen a little bit to the Holy Spirit as to what he is talking about. So these appearances lasted for 40 days. 
and occurred in Jerusalem and Galilee and places in between. He was physically there. So like he died, like legit died, and he legit is alive. Wouldn't that have a little bit of a shaking of your your foundation of what you know to be true from birth? Like when people die, they don't come back to life. They just die. So I better listen a little bit here. So then in verse 4 through 8, Luke addresses the instructions that Jesus delivered to the apostles. First, he told them not to leave Jerusalem until they received the Father, what the Father had promised to them. This was the promise from John's gospel uh, that the Father would send the Helper to the church. John 15, 26. It's right here, by the way, all these verses. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds, pro, uh, proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. So Jesus refers in the scripture to the event as, the, uh, as a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus emphasizes the greater nature of this coming bat baptism in comparison to the one John did with the water. This passage reminds us of the biblical perspective of both baptisms. The water baptism is a picture of real baptism of the Holy Spirit. Did you guys know that? I mean, I always say this. Did you guys know that? I'm just making sure you guys know what baptism is symbolizing. Maybe you guys are veteran Christians. It's okay if you don't understand. Because I went my whole life, you know. I know men, women live their whole life not even understanding what this baptism thing is, right? So we are saved by the baptism of the water? No. We're saved by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the definition of being saved, if you will. But we use water to picture the event. It's amazing. In the case of the apostles, the two events were reversed in sequence. Did you, you guys will really figure this out in this book. It's not actually a doctrinal book. Side note here. The book of Acts is not a doctrinal book. It's a travel journal. Its literary context is actually just narrative. It's not actually a book of how to start a church. It's actually just descriptive, not prescriptive. Do you see the difference? Descri describing just something versus prescriptive. And this has been a really hot big debate in today's church because entire denominations have been birthed out of this one book. You guys have possibly a part of one. You guys have been a part of some. I've been a part of a lot. Next, an X, an X2 2.22 church. We're, we're an Acts 2 church. We're an Acts 2 church. Let me just give you guys the permission to lay aside all of that and look at Acts with a new lens as what it really is. Let the Holy Spirit teach you. There it is. So in the case of the apostles, these were actually reversed. The apostles and many of the first century believers experienced water baptism first, followed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. John's baptism and the Holy Spirit's baptism. The reverse was purposeful in the first century, and we'll explore why as we reach these moments in this book. God flips it. Holy Spirit, water. 
Crazy, right? That was the way it was with me. I was filled with the Holy Spirit at the moment God saved my sinful, enemy-like person soul. He indwelt me with His Holy Spirit. Cast away the old. Behold, the new has come. Oh, man, i got to find some water. You guys know what I'm saying, man? I mean, that's what happens when you, when you get saved. You don't get talked into it. You've got to find some water. Jesus comments, lead the disciples to ask this very interesting question. Can you read, uh, or somebody else, Acts 1, Steve, you do a great job, though. Um, yeah, uh, Acts, Acts 1, 6, please. So, when they had come together, they began asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? <laughs> I mean, honestly, like, I would have asked the same thing. Like, so, so now... You know, are you going to do it now? So why do you, these apostles ask this question at this point? Luke begins the verse with a Greek adverb called our, which means therefore. I'm sorry, I pronounced that wrong. I can't read my chicken scratch. It's called own, own, O-U-N, which means therefore. So this question comes as a result of the instructions that the disciples receive. They go, well, okay, so is the thing you're going to be doing in a few days, you just coming and stomping on the regime, the, 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 the terrible Romans. So specifically, the disciples had the kingdom of Israel on their minds. They, they're not, you know, you got to put yourself in that original audience. They're not sitting there thinking about the kingdom of heaven, ruling and reigning with the Messiah. They're thinking about back in Daniel. They're thinking about Ezekiel. They're thinking about the nation of Israel rising up and stopping her enemies. That's what they're thinking. So remember, Jesus himself mentioned the coming kingdom in verse 3. See that? And then he said, they will all share in a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Do you guys know Jewish disciples knew from the Old Testament that the arrival of the Messiah would be associated with an outpouring of the Holy Spirit? That's, that's, they were ready for that. On Israel. Not on Gentiles. Oh, no, those dogs. Oh, but just us, because we have the oracles. So we covered this topic. Um, I covered this topic when I did a study of Israel on, on Isaiah. This is a really fascinating thing to, to cover if you want to go through the Isaiah study. Actually, it's I, I, I need to do it again. But if you ever want to talk about this aspect alone of Israelology, oh, I love it. But you can refer to yourself in Zechariah 12, 10 through 13, 1. Go read it today, and you'll see what I'm talking about. So the disciples know Jesus to be the resurrected Lord, the Messiah. They don't have any doubt in their mind. They, got, they place their faith in Christ, you know? And they hear him speak of things concerning the kingdom and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, so the only logical conclusion for them to make is this the moment when the kingdom is established for the sake of Israel. It's their logical. It's, it's logical. Uh, but the baptism Jesus spoke about was a different event, one that brings individuals, individuals, not the nation, into the family of God. Are you starting to see it? The plan. This, this baptism that awaits for Israel is the one that will eventually 
bring the nation as a whole into faith and into the kingdom at one point. This is the promise of Scripture. It's not hmm, this person, that person, and this person, If as the true remnant of Israel. They all, every tongue confess, every knee bow, they confess Christ as Lord. Can you imagine that happening? It's hard to imagine right now, right? It's going to. We, we see this in the end of tribulation. So the disciples know Jesus is the resurrected Lord. Yes, we covered that. So Jesus answers their question in 7 and 8. Can somebody else read 7 and 8 for me, please? Basically, he says, no, it's not time for that yet. But let's go ahead. Jimmy, read it. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witness, witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus goes, eh, nope, not happening. Not happening now at this time. And furthermore, you aren't to know when that time will come. It is a time fixed by the authority of God the Father. Think about that for a second as an American. Do we like being told, no? And, it, and it's for me to know and for you to find out. Oh boy, Christians don't like that. Just think what the disciples thought about this. Well, what do you... What are you talking about, man? Just you can tell me. After all we've been through, come on. No, Jesus is saying it's actually a time only my father knows. This is consistent with Jesus' statement in Matthew 24 when he said, The time of his return is unknowable. Jesus, uh, Matthew 24, where am I at here? 24 36. But of the day, that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, Jesus, but the Father alone. Isn't that funny? It's a very interesting thing that we completely obsess over, you know. But then Jesus turns to the substance of what they're really asking. Isn't he good at that? Like when we go before the Lord and we don't understand what he's saying, he actually knows what you really need to know. So the disciples were seeking reassurance. This is what the, the heart of the matter is. They were looking for reassurance that Jesus' authority would overcome and triumph in the world. Do you resonate with that? Do you ever question that? They expected it would come in the form of a promised kingdom. We'll come inaugurate the kingdom. We'd bring in our army. We'd, 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 these angels, these angel, this angelic army would come and just slay the enemy. I mean, they had these fantasies that they would think about, like Old Testament fantasy, like, you're going to do this again, come on, you know. Moses raising up his staff, seeing the slaughter of tens of thousands of men. They're, they're just seeing this every single day, more resentful. And it will eventually happen. <laughs> but Jesus says, in the meantime, you will receive power to establish a different kind of kingdom. The kingdom they will establish will start in Jerusalem. Here's the beginning of the ark. Then extend to Judea. You know, the outskirts, country, country folk. Then Samaria. Oh boy, that made them mad. Think about that. And then finally, 
the entire Gentile world. Those pagans. The kingdom they will establish will start there and end in the world. This is God's plan. This simple statement becomes the marching orders of the church. For the time until Jesus returns for his bride. Don't skip over that. This is Jesus giving you the blueprint for asking or for the answer to the question, well, what are we supposed to do now? There it is. You have it. You have it. It's that simple. It's that simple. This statement is the statement, theme statement of this book. There it is. The book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, whatever, whatever title you want to give this writing, that's the theme statement. The book chronicles how the apostles receive power in a specific sense. Power to bring the gospel to the world and impress its truth upon many people. Power to perform miracles and teach with authority. These guys are fishermen, right? They've never taken a speech class. They're shaking in their boots. The power. The power, guys. I mean, do you know what I'm talking about? Mm. When my grandpa, my old grandpa, he was an old Methodist pastor. And he was like kind of soft-spoken, a little bit, big German man. But as soon as he grabbed the pulpit, he'd lift up his, his chin and he'd be like, all of a sudden there was bravado in his voice and he spoke with fervor, you know. And you had to listen to him, right? I can imagine this with the disciples. They're just these common fishermen just keeping it themselves. Then you got Peter in a few chapters here, standing up on a street corner yelling, saying, men of Israel, give me your ear. You know, I, I mean, I just, I just get goosebumps thinking about that. You know what I mean? Sorry, I get a little bit on a tangent there. It's important to know that this statement of power is highly contextual. Again, let's keep it between the ditches. Let's not go over to one of the shipwreck uh, Jesus uh, ditches, making this all about us for now. Let's just make sure we stay on this in this, this arc. The power that was spoken to these people, that was given to these men, these 11 men, they're sitting there gawking up in the air, like literally up on a hill, watching Jesus. You could, they're just literally standing there on a hill. And Jesus gives them these words. It was spoken to these men. Even in the, in the literary context, it's not generic. It's not, hey, everybody's going to be this way. So you guys are the first 11. This is not the way that's written. Just be careful. I'm not saying that there's not some truth in there. I'm just saying be careful. Don't make it, don't make it pre, uh, prescriptive. Guys, remember, uh, context, let's see if I remember this right. If, if you don't do the context work, you will, you will shipwreck the meaning of this. Of, you will shipwreck the meaning of the passage. And it came to conjunction with the very specific commission. It should be assumed to apply to every believer in every circumstance, shouldn't it? That's what I would have thought. And then Luke records Jesus' ascension, something he didn't describe in his earlier gospel. Let's move on to Acts 1, 9 through 11. Somebody read that real quick. Coming around the bend, guys. 
And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were watching, and a cloud took him up out of their sights. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, then behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taking up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So this moment, picture this, 11 guys on a hill. Jesus is on this, on this hill, and he literally goes up. Material, real physical, human body lifts up without strings. Magnetic fields. No magic. I mean, I, they're probably looking around like, is there like a huge cable tied to his back or nothing? No, he just goes. And he actually goes up behind a cloud. So the sun's out. And he just disappears behind a cloud. They watch. Oh, I kind of I get all like emotional when I think about this. But they watch as their Lord leaves. Like, do you guys, you guys see that? Like, that's emotional. Uh, I love this, this Lord of mine. He is my God. I've placed my faith... And now he, he, he wrangles the power of death. He wields it in his hand. He's been to Hades. He's, I'm with him. I'm with him. Now he's gone. So specifically, Jesus was lifted up, it says in Scripture. The Greek word means to be caught up. And he entered the clouds as was out of sight. Basically, he just, he just left. This explains why the disciples kept gazing after Jesus. I mean, literally, you just picture him like, what? What's, what's going on? Like, in fact, this is probably why the angel has to come. These angels have to show up because they're just out there for hours. I, I would have been out there all day thinking he's coming back. Like, no, I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving, guys. I'm, I'm, I am not leaving this place. This is, this is crap. I can't do this. What do you mean he's gone? I mean, you can just feel that, can't you? You know, you can read this passage and just skip right over this and just be like, and the Lord ascended into heaven. Amen. No, this is, this is real, uh, really emotional. Perhaps they wondered if he would reemerge. I know I would, but he's gone. And at that remains 11 men standing at the middle of the road on this hill, silently staring up at the sky. Do you ever feel like the, that? As a dad, as a mom, where are you? Where'd you go? And apparently God felt like they needed a little nudge. It's kind of comical. I, I think it's kind of comical. So he said, are you just going to sit here and stare up at the sky all day, guys? The Greek word for gazing actually means fixed, staring into space. I mean, it's not like, oh, man. Oh man, dude, I'm so mad. No, they're like fixated, like 11 men. <laughs> they must have seen some, that must have been some sort of sight. And the angel asked, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Why are you looking for Jesus in the sky? This is something sort of an application for us today, isn't it? Why are we looking for the living among the dead? Don't worry, he'll return in the same way he did one day. 
what they said. Because he still has a kingdom, a promise to fulfill. The next brief passage records the apostles obeying Jesus' commandment to remain together in the city. Somebody else read verse 1 or chapter 1, 12, 13, and 14, please. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. There. So they'd been with Jesus on the Mount of Olives before, and now they walk back into the city about three quarters of a mile, which is a Sabbath's day walk. Can't walk over three quarters of a mile on a Sabbath. Did you guys know that? And they return to the upper room, probably the same place as the Last Supper six weeks earlier. I would have done the same thing. Well, let's just go back to where it all started. The same place where Jesus appeared after his resurrection. I'd be like looking at the walls like, is he going to come through the walls again? It becomes something of a home base for the apostles. And they, they, then we see the 11 disciples listed. But with them are Mary and his brothers. Interesting note. The mention of his brothers is very significant. In John 7, 5, we learn that the brothers weren't even believing in Jesus, his own, his own brothers. But after his resurrection, they did. They have joined the faithful. It's too bad, right? It's too bad they had to have his brother, their brother die before they believed. And their time was spent in unified prayer, most likely prayers dedicated to the instructions Jesus gave them, calling for the Spirit to come. They didn't even know what that is. They're just calling. Finally, the introduction ends. This is chapter 1. This introduction ends with, with Luke's pinning, with the selecting and the replacement of one apostle who is being replaced. Okay, go ahead. Let's actually, I'll read it. Acts 1, 15, 16 through 26. Buckle your seatbelts. Here we go. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons were there together and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness and failed, falled, fell headlong. He burst open in the middle of all his intestines, gushed out. Ooh. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language, the field was called Hak Hakeldama, that is <laughs> the field of blood. For it is written to the book of, in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it and let another man take his office. Therefore, it is necessary that the men who have accompanied us all this time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he has, that he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called uh, Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, 
you know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy his ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. And they drew lots for them, and a lot fell on Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. All right, here we go. Coming around to the end here. First, note that Peter takes the initiative to call the group to address one obvious problem of the group. Once there was 12 apostles, but now we only have 11, so we need another one, right? And these will be the 12 apostles ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel in the, the Millennium Kingdom. Guys, that's crazy. Matthew 19, 28, if you want to look it up. Peter reminds this group that the 12th died. He died. Judas died. Judas was thrown down headlong, and his intestines burst out. Ooh, why is he being so graphic, you lunch eaters? And how do we reconcile this with Matthew twenty-seven, where he was told that Jews? We were, we were told that Judas hung himself. So how do we justify this? Do you ever ever wonder this? Well, here it is. <laughs> the The answer is that Judas did hang himself. But by hanging himself on Passover, his dead body was at risk to anyone who came in contact with him. Couldn't touch dead bodies on the Sabbath. So he defiled the city. He hung himself and defiled the city. Very important to remember. So likely, the priests of Galilee had Gentiles. The priests hired Gentiles who could touch dead bodies carry the body outside the city, and cast it into the burning trash heap just outside the city. Do you guys remember what this place is called? It's Gehenna. It was located in the valley of Hainan, or Gehenna, which became a picture in Scripture of hell. Steaming, burning, they would burn their trash. They'd also throw dead bodies in this burning heap if they're cursed. When Judas's body landed on the heap and began to decay, when the Gentile, uh, the Gentile men threw the dead body onto the pile, this is when the bloated body, this is so gross, literally burst open. You guys ever seen a dead cow out on the ranch? That's what happens. You just touch them and it's just like a balloon. Peter's point in speaking graphically was to do what? To scare the you-know-what out of them? No. It wasn't. It, that his death, it, one, is that his death was a just punishment. In effect, both his body and soul were in hell. Serious stuff right here. Somewhat ironically, Peter says in verse 17 that Judas was already received, he already received his portion of Jesus' ministry. It's pretty harsh words, right? And that portion was to play a very... Uh, a, a very important role in fulfilling Scripture. Psalm 69. Did you know that's what Psalm 69 is prophesying? Records that a man's homestead would be left desolate with no one willing to or able to dwell on it, for he will be the one to forsake the Messiah. That actually happened. And under true Jewish tradition, that field still today remains uh, remained his since it was purchased with blood money. So the, so the priest took the money. So ironic. Took the, took the money and purchased a field with the money Judas got, uh, gave back to the priests. Right. They didn't want to touch it. Oh, this is blood money. How, how sick is that? 
So they purchased a field knowing that the dead man is going to own this field to fulfill prophecy. They didn't know it was fulfilling prophecy, but it fulfilled prophecy. No one else could claim that field. And then G Peter quotes Psalm 109, speaking of the same betrayer. So in Psalm 109, it's prophesied as well, saying that the other man will take his office, Matthias. Wow. So acting out of his faith and devotion to God's word, Peter takes the initiative to find the replacement apostle. Interesting. Peter doesn't assume he has the authority to appoint such a person. Wouldn't you think he would? Well, I'm the leader, obviously. We'll just pick a really good guy. He turns to a time-honored tradition to discern God's will in finding a replacement. Guys, casting lots, this is not this is not a jar. But the way casting lots would work is you literally you just put a bunch of people's names on a stone in a in a in a bucket, in a in a bowl, and you just literally draw straws. It's literally that easy. And they they imagine, they they believe that God is the only one that can lead to the outcome of, of that, that little game. Peter then gives a qualification of who will be considered an apostle. And I'm going to skip through this because this is, this is very interesting. But guys, there was only two people that actually qualified. Apparently, only two men knew this would pass this test. Then they placed the decisions in the Lord's hand, praying that he would reveal his word. And in an act of faith, they drew lots, believing that God would direct the outcome according to his will. It's an Old Testament method of receiving the Holy, the Holy Spirit's revelation. Isn't that funny? Before the Holy Spirit, they had to come up with some. <laughs> you know? Rocks were labeled with the men's name and placed on a container or a pot and shaken until one fell out. God gave his practice, this practice in Proverbs 16.33, if you guys are wondering if that was actually a biblical thing to do. After the indwelling of the Holy Spirit came upon the church, this method is no longer needed. We have the Holy Spirit. Well, what, is, what, is he, what are you trying to tell me? Hmm, there's an interesting question. In fact, this is the last time the Bible actually talks about the casting of lots because it's no longer needed in the Christian, in the believer's life. And so Matthias becomes the 12th apostle. Believe it or not, he fills the shoes. He is the, he is the new prize winner. <laughs> of being added to the 12. And again, we'll get into way more, a uh, little bit of eschatology in this, in this, in this study, because the 12 tribes have a, have a tribe leader, if you will. And those 12 tribe leaders are the 12 apostles um, in the nation of Israel when they confess Christ. So this act of faith, uh, this is, this is what I'm going to leave you guys with today. We want to talk about uh, a little bit, I want to talk about what this book, what this introduction has has said to me. But I, more importantly, want you to, to reflect upon three questions as to what perhaps the Holy Spirit might be teaching you in this last 55 minutes. So here's a couple reflection questions if you guys want to chew on them. And I don't know if you guys want to write these down. If you want to, go for it. I'm, I'm not, I don't want to make this too religious or anything like that. But these three questions I want you to dwell on for the rest of this week and chew on and see if the Lord brings in revelation. Number one, what aspects of Christ's character have come into view today? Number two, are you, are we, 
willing to ask God to teach us what does it mean? <laughs> what are we willing? <laughs> Number two, are we willing to ask God to teach us by the Spirit? Number three, when faced with, oh, uh, Steve wants me to repeat this question. Are we willing to, are you willing to ask God to teach us by the Spirit? To teach you by the Spirit. Are you willing to do that? I mean, I'm, don't just say yes. <laughs> Think about it. Is this going to require some serious obedience on your part? Three, when faced with a big decision, which I bet most of you are right now, What's your first course of action? Pros and cons list? <laughs> you know, Google search it? I mean, maybe you just Google search it. But guys, this is this is reflection questions that I want to I want you guys to think about as we move into chapter two next week. Guys, this is an exciting uh book. This is just the introduction. I tried to go as fast as I can. Next week, we dive into the first, the most exciting part of this book to me. Uh, there's a couple of punctuated marks, but obviously Acts 2 is a big deal. That's why I'm going to take two weeks to, ha to hack it apart for you guys to understand exactly what's going on. Guys, there, here's all the scripture. If you guys want to take a picture of that, you want to go back and read that. But, oh, I'm so excited for you to be on this journey with me. Oh, let's just pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this amazing group of people uh, visiting online, uh, who's joined us on Zoom and, and online virtually. Oh, I just want to, I want to pray a prayer blessing over them, as well as the, these amazing individuals, believers, uh, the family of God here in this room. Oh, what an encouragement it is that there's still people out today who are hungry after God's word. So Lord, I just ask that you would be faithful to teach us by your spirit. Even though we're tempted to dive into our own intellect and our own wisdom, Lord, I pray that the book of Acts, this, this crazy, amazing book in the next weeks would be an eye opener and a soul opener to exactly what you would have to teach us in our own personal walk with Christ, as well as what do we bring to the church? What are, what are we doing in the church um, right now in this moment of time for such a time as this. Uh, pray for safety as we go and we come back next week and dive into chapter two. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.